once we start to claim that time is an illusion, in that place, nothing can be defined. Nothing can be conceived. Nothing can exist. If time does not exist, then we are already too late. We are out of time. There is no other choice. All there is left to do is embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 98 of Embrace the Void, where eat the rich is not a metaphor, and we just got a fresh batch of pitos, so dig on in. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week I'm joined by my favorite fish to follow on Twitter, at some stingray. Uh, he's well-versed in the world of Indian philosophy, and the first to suffer our new realism lightning round. Before we get to that, though, just a note. These interviews are likely to be the format for the foreseeable future. I will provide some solo content to patrons, so if you're voidy enough to want to hear me talk more, it's only $4 a month. Uh, That money goes to editing the show and hopefully soon providing some transcripts of these discussions. If you're enjoying the new format, please go to iTunes or wherever you podcast and leave a positive review. If you're not enjoying the new format... Please come join us on the Philosophers in Space Embrace the Void Facebook group and tell me how to do it better. Okay, that's it for housekeeping. Let's go fishing. My guest this week is Philosophy Twitter's favorite anarchist fish, at some stingray. Ray, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I mean, you live in the void all the time, I suppose, down there at the bottom of the sea, but I'm glad we could finally get you on. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, so yeah, uh, lots of stuff I want to chat with you about. I, you are, I think, one of my earliest and favoritest philosophy Twitter follows. Um, I really love the stuff that you put out on a variety of subjects. But I'm curious, since I'm a little late to the philosophy Twitter game and I never got the the origin story, what is it that like attracted you to the Stingray persona in particular? Um, I don't know. I can't really put my finger on something specific. I've just always really found stingrays to be beautiful and fascinating creatures. So, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, I wanted to remain anonymous on Twitter. So I just kind of went with, um, just thought I'd make myself a stingray and, um, uh, mm-hmm. it's worked out fine so far. <laughs> Makes sense to me. I think it's a gorgeous animal fish, Thank you. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> As you like to argue. Um, so, all right. So now that we get the nice small talk part out of the way, let's get the ugly, hideous conflict part out of the way, and then we can get on to the philosophy. Why are you a bigot against gamers? It's not It's not bigotry if it's justified, is it? No. <laughs> there it is. There it is. So, yeah, I don't know. So I, it's kind of become part of my brand on Twitter, and I just kind of <laughs> ran with it. Um, but, I, you know, I don't, you know, just clearing this up here, I don't actually hate every single individual gamer out there in case so you're saying ironically being bigoted against gamers is different than genuinely being bigoted against gamers on twitter yeah yeah irony irony is you know irony (laughs) against gamers is is totally totally justified um (laughs) Uh, but i mean it just kind of started off because i think it's a well-known fact at this point that gaming circles especially on the internet can be pretty reactionary and racist and Mm -hmm. hostile to Mm-hmm. Um, terrible i guess minorities and women so it, it just kind of became a meme that all gamers are just generally awful people and i you know yeah. i made that part of my brand 
I think that's it's solid. It's a solid part of your brand. That's <laughs> even even as a gamer, I appreciate your your cancel gamer culture. <laughs> so. Yeah, so the reason I really wanted to have you on, the stuff that uh, I, I love hearing you talk about when you do it on Twitter, though, I don't get as much of it these days as I feel like as, you know, uh, the hating on gamers, which is fine, <laughs> is Indian philosophy. And I'm curious, like, first of all, just setting the table here a little bit, like, are there particular, like, points of contention that interested you, that got you into Indian philosophy? Or how did you find your way into being interested in Indian philosophy in particular? Um, I think so. I think part of it has to just to do with the fact that, I, you know, that my own heritage is South Asian. And ever since I got interested in philosophy, and I realized that there's, um, there's also a lot of comparative um, philosophy. And um, ever since I think the 1970s, there's just been an explosion of work um, on Indian philosophy as well. Um, so sort of bringing the tools of contemporary analytic philosophy to look at some of the things that Indian philosophers have been talking about for, for millennia. Um, so ever since I realized that that was a thing, um, I just kind of jumped in um, and I've, you know, I've been hooked ever since. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not sure if there's, you know, particular points um, of contention that interest me. So one thing I realized is that a lot of debates that you find in Indian philosophy are basically parallel to a lot of debates you'll find in, I guess you'd call it Western philosophy or even contemporary philosophy. Um, right. They're arguing about a lot of the similar, a lot of the same things and making, you know, a lot of cases making very similar arguments even. Um, so, you know, seeing those connections is something that always, has mm-hmm. always interested me. Um, is, is there a particular example of that synchronicity that you like, uh, that you're particularly into? Um, I think, you know, so I think this is something that interests you as well. So the question of, mm-hmm. um, whether or not there's there is such a thing as as a self, um, mm-hmm. and if there is what what that might actually be, um, that has a long and fascinating history of you know um, arguments going back and forth um, in Indian philosophy, and you know there's a lot of um, at least um, I guess I don't know it's probably since David Hume that that whole debate kind of got reignited in Western philosophy as well. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting parallels there, and I think um, you know both disciplines can learn from each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was really blown away in grad school when I took Indian philosophy that like, not not only were they making similar arguments, but they were also out in front on a lot of arguments in particular, like especially uh, interesting arguments about the relationship between the self and God and reality. And like the way that those things can interact, I feel like they were way ahead of even what, you know, was being done in Hume's time. And then were often confirmed in a lot of their applied theories uh, by modern psychology more and more, it seems like. So yeah, there's, yeah, there's also a lot of fascinating research um, that sort of brings the tools of psychology um, and neuroscience to, to these issues. And I think on the, just the question of the self, I think it might, I'm, I'm just speculating here, but I think it might have to do with just the fact that um, Christianity was so entrenched in Europe that, the no self or sort of alternative views um, of the self didn't really get as much attention in European philosophy. That's just a mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. Whereas Buddhism has been, been around for, you know, for at least 2000 years, um, more than that. And they've always helped the, the position that there is no self. So that the kind of back and forth that you see, um, on the question of the self, I think has just existed for a much longer period of time. Um, in Indian philosophy, but, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not a scholar of the, of history of, philosophy or anything so if i'm i might be way off base here but that's just that's just my speculation i mean that was the way it was at least taught to me as well and this is another thing where it's like i've always want to be wary about you know misconceptions but that the sort of you know we in uh western philosophy tell narratives as a way of understanding the arc of ideas and i think it's you know it can be dangerous sometimes but it's also useful and i think one of the prevailing theories i've seen about indian philosophy is that the dialogue between Hinduism and Buddhism, and especially over the question of the self, is why both sides got so good at making their arguments. So, uh, yeah, I think yeah, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of truth to that. And if you look at the different schools, so you know, we're using mm-hmm. Hinduism and Buddhism as really broad labels here. But if you look right. at the sub schools within them, a lot of them evolve and their positions change and get refined through this sort of back and forth um, with their opponents in, you know, the other schools. So that's, so definitely that's one of the ways that, you know, the, the, the positions evolve and develop over time. 
Yeah. Speaking of the different schools, I was curious, are there particular schools on either side that you are personally attracted to or find have especially interesting arguments? Um, it's difficult to say. So there's, I think there's a lot of interesting ideas in a lot of them, but um, one that I find particularly interesting is the, um, is the Madhyamaka school of, um, of Indian Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're, um, if you follow me on Twitter, you've probably encountered um, a lot of jokes about Nagarjuna. And, yeah, um, which I love and, the most because it's also my favorite <laughs> Buddhist school and it's one of the reasons I, I fell yeah, in love with yeah. your Twitter. <laughs> yeah, so I think uh, a lot of his arguments are interesting in particular because mostly what he's doing is just kind of tearing apart everyone else's position and showing that it, that it leads to kind of absurdities. Um, so that's always something that I found um, very interesting. Um, so if you ask me to pick a favorite, it would be hard, but I'd, I'd probably go with that one. Yeah, I sort of imagine the Guardian is like the Socrates of that world where like he just would be so annoying and everyone would want to kill him. <laughs> and he wouldn't mind because he doesn't exist. Um, so, yeah, what, what it, you know, let's dive a little bit more since we both love the Madhyamaka school. And I find sure. this view particularly interesting. Do you want to unpack the idea of... Uh, sort of emptiness and the emptiness of emptiness idea a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So this is you know one of the one of the more controversial parts of um, of his of his um, philosophical views. And you know, there's like everyone else, there's a there's a whole bunch of competing interpretations about what what exactly um, he meant when when he was talking about emptiness there. But I think you know one way one way to look at it would be if you look at the um, earlier schools of Buddhism, one of the things they did was they came up with this division between conventional um, truth and ultimate truth, right? Um, and so that's where the two doctrine of the two truths comes from, um, which, I, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or as we so call it in idea... Western philosophy, cheating. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, I, and that's, that's actually, I guess you could say that that's what Nagarjuna says as well. Um, <laughs> Because he's eventually going to argue against that distinction, um, but I think it helps to start from there. So the idea is that there's when we sort of describe the world around us, um, we can talk about uh, talk about various things in you know two different ways. We can talk about conventional truth, which is basically truths that lead to successful practice um, in everyday life and help us explain and predict um, the world around us. Um, and so you know. A common example would be so: Are tables real? You know, as a as a mm-hmm. common question, and the you know some Buddhists would say that um, they're conventionally real, um, and that they're you know it's useful to have a um, sort of a, a signifier that refers specifically to that object, given it's the role it plays in our you know everyday practices. Um, but at the ultimate level, it's just you know symbols arranged um, table wise. I guess would be would be one way to put it. Mm-hmm. Dharma is um, arranged so, table wise, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the only things that really exist, um, sort of in and, in and of themselves, independently of you know our conventions and you know our own interests, are these things that can't be broken down any into any um, further parts, right? So, those things ultimately exist, um, and everything else is just an arrangement um, of these um, ultimate entities, and you know how we how we pick you know, the, the words we use and the uh, and the concepts we use. Um, to pick out particular arrangements of these of these ultimate um, entities is basically it's just a matter of our own um, convenience and our everyday practices and conventions. So that's that's basically the divide between the conventional and ultimate um, truth. And you know, there's also a lot of disagreement about what exactly these ultimately existing things are. So you could say they're mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was just going to ask atoms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I guess you know, if uh, a sort of contemporary. Um, approach that would be to just say that whatever fundamental physics tells us um, exists at the ultimate level, that that's what is ultimately true. So I guess, I don't know, quantum fields or if string theory turns out to be true, then strings. Mm-hmm. Um, monads. I'm, I'm betting on monads. <laughs> monads, yes. So, so yeah, so that, so that, that distinction between the two, two truths becomes very important in Buddhist philosophy for a while. Um, and then what basically what um, you, so so the question uh, remains: What exactly is the nature, you know, of this these ultimately existing things? I mean, one approach is to say that um, it's just beyond conceptualization, right? Um, mm-hmm. So we can't really say anything about um, the nature of uh, this ultimate existence other than than it exists. So that's that's one interpretation of uh, of Madhyamaka. Um, mm-hmm. 
emptiness. But uh, but the there is another interpretation, which is just that the very notion of there being in sort of an ultimate way things are um, is incoherent. Um, mm-hmm. And there's some textual evidence that that's what Nagarjuna was going for. Um, so at that point, you're collapsing the distinction between conventional truth and ultimate truth. So really, there's just conventional truths um, that depend on our own interests and practices. And that's a that's a very counterintuitive position. Um, right. But um, that's there. there's that interpretation as well. So um, to say that all things are empty is to say that there's nothing that has this intrinsic um, nature of its own and exists in and of itself in some sort of ultimate way. So right. everything is just conventional truth. Um, so yeah, there's different interpretations, but that's, um, I, I happen to think that that might be, you know, most, um, what Nagarjuna Mm -hmm. himself would have been most sympathetic to, but I also find it very hard to kind of accept, um, it's just, just because it's, it's counterintuitive. Um, and if you, if you asked me to pick, I would just, um, personally, I would pick the, um, the interpretation that, you know, whatever ultimately exists is just beyond, um, human conceptualization. Yeah, more of a like Kantian noumena things as they are in themselves kind of. Yeah, but yeah. I'm like I'm sympathetic to the second interpretation, um, mm-hmm. partly because I'm very sympathetic to the idea of codependent arising, which also plays right. a big role in this. The idea that like, um, uh, you know, nothing has when we say that things aren't selves or they aren't like that, what they don't have is like a radical kind of separateness. Like they aren't, they aren't essential entities in the like platonic kind of way. And so I think what you were describing there when you collapse it down is the idea that like everything is only a thing insofar as its relation to other things. And that even that thingness is given to it via its interactive relationship. Is that seem right to you yeah yeah i think that's uh that's that's one way to put it but then there's Mm -hmm. i think you could there's another question you could raise is are those interactions in some sense um ultimately real or you know how 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 exactly that would work yeah um but that's yeah so (laughs) that's where that's where things get tricky (laughs) right exactly because like then you get to the question of well in buddhism what's reincarnating and and right the answer that they'll give is it's a densely packed nexus of causal interactions and it's like the causality exists and the the fields seem to exist or something but they're all determined by their relational properties it seems like right i mean another way to put it is like there are no non-relational properties yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah i I think that's a it's a fascinating sort of very voidy counterintuitive um position and it it gives some really interesting answers to like questions about then how should we understand ourselves? i think how should we apply our sense of self when we're going about doing things right would you how, how would you see this playing out in our sort of you know modern mindfulness world Ah, that's, that's another tricky question. So it's, so the the question of what exactly is the purpose? So what are, what are you supposed to gain by mm-hmm. coming to this realization is again, um, not entirely clear. Um, and again, there's, there's differences of interpretation. Um, but I think the, really it's, it's the idea of once you, uh, I think it all really comes down to this, the idea of, um, of the self. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, once you realize that there's no, um, there's no such thing as a sort of substantial self, um, that exists in and of itself. Um, and you, and you look at things, um, the way you were describing earlier, it's just this complex, um, connection of, um, of regularities and and patterns that, that hold through time. Mm -hmm. Um, it's supposed to be a a liberating, um, point of view. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I guess that, that would be the, the ultimate, um, the, the goal of, um, of this sort of realization. And of course, um, it's important to remember for, for even for for people like Nagarjuna and other philosophers, philosophy was never separate from like actual practice, right? So it was one part of a whole bunch of things they had to do to, to attain enlightenment, um, including, you know, meditation and, and all of that. Yeah, it's so interesting that both sides, like if you think of them as sides, the Hindus and the Buddhists are are both aiming towards practice and liberation. And, you know, they're like, they agree on a lot of baseline issues. And then they have these fascinatingly deep fundamental disagreements. 
Um, do you sort of maybe switching gears a little bit to the other side of that? Do you feel like there are any arguments? I mean, I get the impression you're sympathetic to the Buddhist side of this, but do you feel like there are particular schools of Hindu thought that make a very strong case for some version of the self? Uh, yeah, um, there are a couple of arguments um, that I find very interesting, and I'm not sure if I have a, a sort of definitive response to. Um, and you see these arguments usually pop up in independently in different um, uh, schools that are that are not Buddhist, so that do ha- that are committed to the view that there is some sort of self um, mm-hmm. that exists. Um, and again, I think you find sort of versions of this argument outside Indian philosophy as well. Um, but one common argument is the argument for memory. Um, so the idea is that um, you know, let's say, just to pick a completely random example, let's say I'm eating a banana right now. Um, <laughs> a totally random example. Uh-huh. <laughs> completely random. Mm-hmm. Um, and if when I'm having when I'm eating this banana, I remember um, eating a banana. I don't know some let's say two days ago, right? Um, and not only do I remember eating, uh, not only do I remember the banana from two days ago, I actually remember the experience um, of eating the banana. And the the basic idea is if there's not one one single entity that existed at both points in time, those sorts of experiences wouldn't make any sense. So the so the common sort of example or um, example used is, you know, one person can't remember the experiences of another person, right? I can't remember something that you experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, for me to have that, uh, remember an experience I had earlier, I had to be present um, at both points in time. And, mm-hmm. and um, that's the only way that, you know, I can make sense of experiences like that. So if that's the case, then there is some sort of persisting entity um, over time. We don't know. We don't know yet. There's nothing much we can say about the exact nature of that entity. And they have, and so they have independent arguments to show that, you know, it's a non-physical thing and that it's eternal and all of that. But at the very least, if an argument like this is successful, um, it shows that there's some persisting entity, which, which is obviously something Buddhists wouldn't want to accept. Um, But, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if the argument actually works. Mm-hmm. And we should highlight something there you, that we haven't highlighted so far that's useful, which is the persisting part that like mm-hmm. what's actually up for debate here is, is there an entity that persists for more than one moment? Because one of the exactly, ways that yeah. like the Buddhists get out of the how can you claim there are actual entities thing is that they don't think that any of those tiny irreducible things lasts for more than a moment, right? As I understand it. That's right. Yep. Uh, that's, uh, there, there may be, there are some exceptions, but for the most mm-hmm. part, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the popular view. So everything, um, exists for a moment and then, you know, and then there's something new that comes into being and there's like a, a causal connection between what previously existed and what now exists. Um, right. so, so yeah, so it's really a question of whether there is such a thing as a persisting self that's, that's really up for debate. Um, at this point which is why memory is more important than being able to say what like i have a unified theory i have a unified experience of several sensations in this moment right i'm smelling and tasting and looking at the same time right that That, but but interestingly that's um Mm -hmm. that's actually also an argument um that you see crop up so if and that will that will depend on the specific um but this view of the self. So if the view is that there's just a bundle of perceptions um, at every instant, um, then it's hard to see how um, all of these can form a unified sort of field of consciousness is, I guess, one way to put it. So that's another argument that you do see. So the idea is to to make a judgment of the sort, um, this object that I'm now seeing is the same object um, that, I, that, I, that I'm touching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is that there has to be a single sort of consciousness that's um, to which both of these um, appearances are available um, and a single consciousness that's simultaneously aware through these different modes of perception to be able to unify um, them and come up with this and come to this sort of conclusion, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the, the visual perception can't, can't say that it had the, the tactile um, sensation and vice versa. So there has right. to be, there has to be something, um, that kind of stands behind them um, and makes that makes that judgment. Um, so that is that yeah, that is another argument um, that that you find as well. So I guess if you put both of those together, um, you kind of come to the conclusion that there has to be some sort of unifying presence um, that exists over time. Um, so I guess those are probably the the most interesting arguments to me. Um, mm-hmm. And there's been like centuries of of debate about whether you can explain these things without um, without a persisting self. 
Yeah, I find it really interesting because like cognitive science, it feels like is pulling, trying to pull away from this idea of a wit, like what I would call a witnessing consciousness, right? This unified internal entity um, of some sort. It seems to me that the Buddhist doesn't necessarily have to though, right? Like I feel like the Buddhist could, you know, like I was saying with earlier with the kind of bundle nexus theory, argue Mm -hmm. that there could be the appearance of a causal persistence and that would give this capacity for memory, but that that the entity wouldn't have any of the other more controversial features that you mentioned earlier that I think we'll talk about a little bit more in a second, that like Hindu uh, traditions tend to want to apply to that self. Because I'm very sympathetic to the need for like a very thin witness consciousness. I just don't think yep. that like it's anything more than just the, the the unifying of these different experiences, right? It, it is merely the unification of them. So, so would you say that there's um, at every instance there's some sort of witness consciousness that unifies these different sensations, um, but that don't, that unifying thing also just just lasts for an instance, instant, and then you have then you have the sort of the next instant in the series, basically. Yeah, I mean, if you buy the idea that you can still have causality over time, even with these instantaneous entities, which the Buddhists right. want to argue because they're not denying yep. the existence of causality over time, uh, yeah, that seems like you have to have that to me. That that instantaneous. I mean, for lack of a better concept, a Cartesian theater. Like you have to have right. a something like a, a, a unified frame of reference. Yeah. So so I guess that yeah. So if if you accept that, then I guess you could you could say that. There's something like that, but even that only exists for an instant and doesn't doesn't um, persist through time. So you could you could have a modified view, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, I guess the, the the question that still remains is if that if that if that only lasts for an instant, um, if you can still account for the experience of, um, of recognition or memory, um, mm-hmm. and if you really do need something that persists through time for that, and that's uh, that's something that. Um, it keeps me up at night, but uh, I don't really have an answer. <laughs> well, right, because I mean that's re- that really is. It seems like asking, you know, can you have causality if you don't have persistence through time in some sense? But then, like, you get into right. questions of what is causality? How does causality work? I feel like yeah. paradoxes start to arise there, like, yep. and you see those paradoxes show up all the time in the um, even in the Hindu traditions, especially. I feel like a lot of like the interesting critiques of like I was saying earlier, the relationship between the self and God or, or Brahman right, Atman and Brahman and the contingent world, right? There are these really interesting problems about how contingent entities and non-contingent entities can interact. Yep. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of um, different models of of causation that then come into play as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, so one, so we're talking about memory and one kind of, common response is that even if every um sort of um uh, every instance of cognition or consciousness only exists for an instant if it can pass on information to the next one then you know you can as long as that information keeps getting passed on to the next uh, next um instant in the in the series then you know that might help explain um how you can remember something that happened in the past even if you didn't sort of persist through time from that moment to now as long as the information was passed on Mm -hmm. so that's one very common um kind of response to that argument Mm -hmm. do you feel like in terms of the uh comparative philosophy stuff do you feel like it's useful to talk about trying to like describe buddhist for example buddhist ethics describing it in western ethical terms like is it useful to try to say buddhists are utilitarians or something like that i think so 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 you know as long as we start with the acknowledgement that you know both traditions started in very different concept uh, in contexts and have different presuppositions um i don't think there's really any harm in applying these categories um mm-hmm. to um, to Indian philosophy. So there's a lot of debate about whether Buddhism is ultimately a form of virtue ethics or if it's a form of consequentialism. Um, mm-hmm. and, or maybe it's even some sort of synthesis between the two. Um, but, but yeah, I think, uh, I don't, so I know some people do object to that sort of analysis, but you know, I think it can, can actually be clarifying. So okay. I think it's useful. Yeah. To, to apply that sort of analysis. 
So, so what's your take then on that particular debate between the, I mean, like, yeah, I'm curious what your view is. Is it a virtue theory? Is it a kind of utilitarianism? Is it a synthesis of the two? I think it does, uh, for Buddhism at least, I think it's ultimately a form of consequentialism. But I think um, what they would say is that the way to maximize or, or the way um, the way to get the best consequences is for everyone to cultivate um, certain virtues. So mm-hmm. it is a form of virtue theory, but it's kind of um, sort of it's grounded in ultimately a form of, of consequentialism is, um, is what I would say. Um yeah. Because if you look at some of the some of the uh, arguments in in Buddhist ethics, they're ultimately talking about we need um, we need to get rid of suffering, um, mm-hmm. and so whatever um, the best whatever has the best best consequences that is gets rid of suffering is um, is you know is the is the right course of action, and they sort of they understand that in terms of cultivating um, different virtues. So that I think that's that's kind of my take, which is you know. I, I'll admit as a controversial take, but that's that's kind of where, how I see things. I mean, I largely agree with that take from an as an ethicist like who loves reading Buddhism. I think that you know th- the main goal, right? The, the objective is the liberation of all sentient beings from suffering, right? That's the objective, and the way you achieve it is by a bunch of people becoming enlightened, by everyone becoming enlightened, and you do that via virtue but even enlightenment itself is the the means to the end of the cessation of suffering uh it seems like um i'm curious uh, this is something that came up in in one of the classes i took there's an interesting suggestion that um buddhists who are unenlightened are encouraged to be rule utilitarians that like the following of things like the eightfold path is a kind of rule utilitarianism for entities that don't have a perfect ability to determine what will produce the most enlightenment, but that when you read the stories of enlightened beings, they switch over to be a, a, becoming a kind of act utilitarian, where they're allowed to do literally anything because it will maximize utility in that way. Do you agree with that? That's uh, that's an interesting take. I mean, it's I mean it certainly has a um, sort of an in, uh, initial sense of plausibility to me because. Um, it's true that, um, and this is true not just of Buddhism, but all the the, the different philosophical systems that, that you see in, um, in classical Indian philosophy, is that they have a different um, set of obligations and prescriptions for people who are um, explicitly on the path to enlightenment. So it's typically um, monks, right? So mm-hmm. You have a different set of um, prescriptions, obligations, rules for those people, and then you have a sort of more relaxed um, set of obligations for ordinary people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and ordinary people are not expected um, to attain liberation anytime soon. So their goal is primarily to provide um, the monks with kind of material support um, in this life so that the monks may um, attain liberation. And giving them that kind of support gives ordinary people a better rebirth, which puts them in a better position to attain liberation, you know, later down the line. Um it's so a very communist method of liberation, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I think uh, what you said is true. So they would not. So, and you wouldn't expect an enlightened being, um, and or a monk to have the same set of um, of uh, of obligations or same recommendations on how to go through life as you would um, an ordinary person. So, there's definitely that kind of pluralism um, in Buddhist ethics. I think. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Hindu ethics? Is it substantially different? Or is it sort of largely similar, but with different metaphysical assumptions? Um, I think it would. So again, I think it would come down to ultimately being um, more or less similar. There's different points of um, of emphasis, right? Um, and that's the, so. Compassion is um, is typically something that um, Buddhists emphasize over pretty much everything else. Um, whereas the Jains kind of similar, um, mm-hmm. but they mostly emphasize nonviolence itself rather than cultivating compassion. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but I think in terms of ethics, there's not too much um, disagreement at the ultimate level. So at the level of everyday practice um, and social structures, there's usually an amount of um, some amount of disagreement about what is the best way to organize society. Um, but at the, the, when it comes to, you know, the goal and the way to get there, there's not too much difference, um, is what I would say. Fair enough. Do you feel like there's any other like major misconceptions 
that especially Western folks who haven't um, looked at this stuff very much might have about any of these traditions that are important to clear up? Uh, I think one uh, misconception that still kind of persists is that Indian philosophy is sort of only concerned with theological questions or is mm -hmm. only con is primarily a sort of mystical um, tradition or something like that. Um, but I think, you know, that can pretty easily be dismissed if you actually look at what these different traditions are saying. Um, and um, it's increasingly, I think, it's being recognized um, in sort of um, in the academia as well. Um, and people are seeing that there's um, the Indian philosophers were for millennia arguing about mostly the same things that, um, you know, Western philosophers have been arguing about. Um, and they're based on similar uh, methodology as well. Of course, there are important differences, but the, the whole idea that you proceed by, you know, laying out a position, um, giving arguments for that position rather than just, you know, asserting them or appealing to mystical intuition. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're providing these arguments, you're considering possible objections, you know, replying to those objections, refining your position. Um, that sort of methodology of what we would typically consider um, philosophy, I think um, mm -hmm. it's being increasingly recognized that that's always been, um, that's been part of Indian philosophy. But you know, for people who aren't familiar with it, you'll still see people say things like, oh, there's uh, Indian philosophy is just, you know, all about theology and they don't mm -hmm. really have arguments um, and stuff like that. So I think that's like the major misconception that if there's one thing I'd want people to take away from this, it's that that's, that's just not true. Yeah. It's a good point. And it's, it's been a, it's been nice in my lifetime even feeling like philosophy is getting better about this kind of ideological slur towards other non-Western traditions by seeing them as not rigorous, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that is good. Do you feel like there are particular texts that have come out recently that would also maybe be accessible to non-experts that, that convey some of these ideas and, and sort of convey that there is this connection between these traditions? Uh, yeah. So there's qu quite a few sort of introductory um, books on, on Indian philosophy. Um, there are some that look at particular traditions and there are some that um, look more broadly and sort of um, give you an overview of the different different traditions, um, the different schools of Indian philosophy and what, you know, the kinds of things that concern them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if we're looking at um, for uh, at texts for um, people who, who aren't too familiar with this stuff, um, we were talking about Buddhism earlier. So Buddhism is Philosophy by Mark Sideritz um, is one of my favorite books um, as, um, mm -hmm. as sort of introductory look at Buddhist philosophy in India. Um, it goes over the different schools of Buddhism, how they developed um, their arguments against non-Buddhist traditions. And, um, and you can see uh, when we read that, uh, it becomes pretty clear um, that, you know, this was, you know, you see a lot of rigor um, and technical argumentation and all of that um, that you would expect to see in, you know, in, in, um, in philosophy. Um, so that would be one book. And um, I guess there's another book, um, an introduction to Indian philosophy, I think, or it's called by Roy Parrott. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that doesn't look just at Buddhism, but basically looks at um, all the different schools. Um, and rather than going over the, um, each school, it, it basically looks um, at different topics. So it's arranged according to different themes. So it'll, it'll, the, so it picks a theme like um, you know causation. What do each of these schools say about causation, and how do they have you know what are the arguments they present against each other, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the two. Books that sounds that really I would interesting. Recommend. Um, great. Do you, have you, I'm like, sorry, I hadn't asked you about this ahead of time, but I'm curious, do you look much at the, the way that Indian philosophy sort of bled over into Chinese and Japanese philosophy and blended with some of the other traditions there? Uh, no. So that's, that's one of those things that I've wanted to do for a while now, but I haven't really got around to doing it. So you know, Buddhism is the obvious connecting thread. Um, sure. Buddhism went from India to China and then everywhere else. And, um, you know, a lot of the translations of the, of the Sanskrit and Pali texts are, are you can find in, in Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't really explored um, Chinese or Japanese Buddhism, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if you have, but if you are, and if you have recommendations, I'll be, I'll be glad to take a look. I mean, I've looked a little bit at Zen Buddhism, like Zhuangzi kind of stuff. Um, I'm certainly not as well versed as as folks like um, Last Positivist, but I, I really like the connections between Buddhism and Taoism, especially. I am very interested in, in Taoism, and I think that it um, 
there there's there's some differences, but there's a lot of fascinating overlap, especially in their views about sort of the breaking down of the sense of independent self as as that being the, one of the major roots of suffering um, and that a lot can be done just by sort of letting go of the attachment to the idea of separateness. Yeah, uh, that's that's really interesting. And there's also, I've, I read a little bit about like debates between Confucianism and Buddhism mm-hmm. that happened in China. And if, um, if I remember correctly, one of the things the Confucians accused the Buddhists of was being too concerned with kind of otherworldly affairs. Um, mm-hmm. And that if everyone started following that, then there'd be a breakdown of, um, of society. Um, yeah, well, so that was, that was one of the arguments against them. And the other was simply that um, the Buddha was a, was a foreigner and uh, mm-hmm. therefore a barbarian. And so Chinese people shouldn't listen to him. I don't uh, usually take the side of the Confucians, but I mean, I think this is a critique. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this that is worth considering with especially Western adapt, adaptations of mindfulness traditions, whether it's Buddhism or Stoicism. Like, I, I worry that some of these traditions do create a permission structure that allow people to avoid addressing substantial, serious social problems by telling them that the right way to address those things is to not be as upset that they exist. What do you think about that critique? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to that as well. So I don't want to come across as being uncharitable to these traditions. But No, I mean, I, we're both clearly lovers of these traditions. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely sympathize with that. So I do think that, especially when we're talking about things like suffering, there's a, there's a way in which um, these traditions all seem to locate the, 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 the problem of suffering is ultimately a sort of an individual thing in that it's a product of your your desires, right? Right. In some sense, your, your own dispositions, mm-hmm. which of course are shaped by um, a lot of different things, but ultimately that's kind of where um, that's kind of the origin of, of, of suffering. And um, the way, the way to, to deal with that is to sort of an inner, um, you know, you look inwards sort of inner cultivation and, you know, uh, meditation, you know, not, you know, um, not being attached, all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, it does, it does seem like that, um, I could just, that could lead people away from trying to address um, the you know actual social problems um, in this life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's 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 a concern I share. Um, and yeah, like you said, you know, I don't, I'm not I'm not usually one to side with um, with Confucians on anything, but <laughs> this this uh, there's I think there's there's a hint of truth in this. Um, and you know, so it's true that so for you know we know that India for all of its history was you know very hierarchical. Um, Mm-hmm. oppressive society for, for most people um, and none of these traditions really were about fundamentally changing the social order right um, right despite you know all their um all the great ethics you find in there use there they have no hierarchy and um you know yeah um differences in class and all of that um and caste are all seen as part of everyday life right and there's no sort of imperative um to radically alter the way the way society is set up um it's all about, um, and in, in some sense, um, all of that is even seen as necessary because you need a community of um, of lay people to provide material support um, right. to the monks, who are, who are the only ones who are really um, aiming for a sort of liberation um, in, in the short term, right? So, uh, yeah. So I think I think um, um, I definitely agree that there is there is that danger of, of ignoring real social problems and sort of um, focusing on on sort of your own. Um, your own, I guess, your own attachment and, and things like that instead of sort of participating um, in social change. Yeah, it seems like that you could argue there's a, there's a little bit too much emphasis sometimes on on the turning of the large karmic cosmic wheel and less of the the smashing of the socio political wheel. Um, right. That it, you know a lot of people recognize is causing a lot of suffering and like yeah, and it's and- something. That I also, I mean, it's also just something that, like, this is a, an act that I'm grinding a little bit at the moment, probably into a paper at some point about, you know, feeling like when these traditions focus the attention into, internally into the self and say this is the easiest place 
to bring about the end of suffering, that that's not even always actually true. That, like, you could effectively bring about a cessation of suffering much better by reorienting society than by teaching everyone to be okay with radical wealth inequality. Like, that's a harder lift, it seems like. So, you know, like, I, I feel like sometimes these traditions trade on the idea that, like, it's just easier to just let it go than it is to enact social change. So... That was yeah, just my rant. Apologies. No, no, I no, I agree with that. Um, I, I know think, you're an anarchist, so you're part, here with me on this, right? <laughs> yeah, so, and I think part of that just has to do with the sort of the broader sort of metaphysical picture that they buy into, right? So if you if you recognize that it's not just this life, and you know, there's things like um, mm-hmm. karma and rebirth, um, then the sort of the imperative to radically alter this this society or in this life kind of goes away, right? If, if everything is in some sense, or at least partly determined by, you know, your actions in your previous births and you're going to have another birth, um, then, you know, that I feel like there's, there's less incentive mm-hmm. to, um, to change things in, in the here and now. So now that I've propped the door open on the question of anarchism, do you want to give folks a little bit of your elevator pitch for why we should all become anarchists? Cause I'm a, I'm a statist cuck, I'll be honest with you. So uh, I'm curious what, why you uh, stand for uh, anarchism so hard. Um, anarchism to me is just a, um, a society um, built on free association and mutual aid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that means the, the abolition of the state, um, the abolition of, um, of capitalism and, uh, and uh, yeah, free association. And I think uh, the reason I, so, so I think, what a lot of people will say is that um, that kind of thing sounds good in theory, um, but in, in practice, it's uh, it's not likely to happen. And that's kind of what I would push back on. And I would say that um, if you look um, at, at history and sort of the anthropological record, um, you can definitely see um, societies sort of approximating um, to anarchy. Um, and the real challenge is kind of building that on a on a global scale. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that one of the other reasons uh, we should be anarchists is that um, at this point, with um, given the way things are going with um, with climate change and existing institutions, I think if we don't um, if we don't get rid of them, that the the alternative is is much worse. Um, so it's really a question of um, either we either we get rid of capitalism and the state, um, or you know. Uh, Things aren't going to look good for us. So, let me ask: in a, in the sort of the anarchist world that you would, I mean, that you think would be better for the environment, um, would it be that what would prevent individuals from or or corporations from polluting, or excuse me, or or would there not be polluters? Like, how would how would that work? Uh, right. So, I think. Um, so I think the way to answer that would be to look at what anarchists think are the cause. I don't, so I'm not, I'm not, so just to be clear, I don't, I'm not saying that an anarchist mm-hmm. society would definitely um, solve all these problems or even that it would, um, that it would uh, solve our, her ecological mm-hmm. problems entirely. But I think that our um, existing society based on capitalism and the state will, will definitely, so that, that's something we sure. can rule out for sure. Um, and so the question of what would, um, you know, what future society would look like and whether it would be better equipped um, to do these things, um, I think the answer is yes, but I don't think it's merely a question of um, once you get rid of, um, of uh, the state and, and capitalism, people are automatically going to behave in ways that, uh, that don't cause, you know, ecological um, crisis and environmental degradation and stuff like that. I think that has to be part of the agenda from the start. So any, um, any form of, um, anarchy or socialism that, that doesn't have an environmental agenda, um, right from the beginning, um, is not, you know, is probably going to not, not probably not going to do a good job of addressing the issue here. Um, mm-hmm. and for, for, as far as why I think existing or, or current society can't deal with the problem, it's mostly, uh, comes down to, first of all, the fact that, um, capitalism is based on, um, the accumulation of profits and growth, and that's always going to take um, precedence over mm-hmm. environmental concerns. Um, and as far as the state goes, um, as far as states exist, as long as states exist, they're going to be in um, military competition with each other. Um, and that 
creates the incentive um, to develop the kind of technology that uh, you know that that gives them better um, military and, and surveillance technology. And so to push for that, they're constantly going to stabilize relations of production that are more in favor of growth and productivity um, than, than environmental um, concerns. Because mm-hmm. the goal for, for the state would be to, to develop, um, to gain revenue and also to, to um, gain better technology. And the way to do that would be to um, encourage capitalist relations that give them that. Sure. Um, and so with, with as long as states um, and, 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 and capital exist, I don't think that... Um, they're ever going to be able to deal with the, with the problem adequately. And given just how little time we have to, to get things right, I think we have to look at um, radical solutions. I think at this point in history, not looking at, at radical um, solutions is, is, is utopian. Um, mm-hmm. you, have to, you have to think about radical solutions. <laughs> I certainly agree on that front. Yeah. Yeah. Like moderate, mild reforms are, are just not going to cut it. So let me ask, since I'm um, a social contract kind of fiend, okay. like, what is the pitch that you would make to me for if I was, like, concerned that uh, the anarchist world tips into a sort of horrible Hobbesian state of nature pretty quickly? Do you feel like that's inaccurate in terms of human behavior or that there would be some other sort of social system that would manage that issue without being a state? Uh, so I think that's so. If you look at um, if you look at sort of human history, um, what you see is not, in, in, especially in societies um, without um, without the state. I'm not saying those societies had no violence or or, um, or trouble or anything like that, but you don't see exactly the kind of um, of Hobbesian nightmare um, that uh, that you know people would predict. Um, there's a there's a really good book out. It's called I think it's called Prehistoric Myths in Political Philosophy or something like that. Hmm. Um, that really um, I can't can't remember the author uh, the authors at this point, um, but they kind of go over um, the problems with that kind of assumption that um, in the absence of the state, um, you know we uh, we collapse into a sort of Hobbesian world and you know constant violence. Um, and if you look at the um, again if you look at the anthropological record, what you see is that. Um, when you see the emergence of the first states, um, in, you know, in prehistory, that's when you see the, 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 the largest increases, um, in violence and slavery and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, so I think there's, there's a, you know, I don't think, um, we have to be, I don't think there's evidence that the sort of Hobbesian nightmare world is, <laughs> is, uh, is, you know, definitely going to be the end goal without the state. Um, but, and I, I would also say that, um, anarchists don't think that, you know, we can just, get rid of the state and all existing institutions um, at one stroke and then everything kind of magically, um, uh, you know, everything magically sets itself right. Anarchists think that we should, uh, we should be building those kinds of institutions right now. um, And what the future society is something that emerges um, out of the present, the kinds of institutions we build and the kinds of action we take to oppose um, the state. Um, and, um, and capitalist um, institutions. So it's not that we get rid of existing institutions and then you know w- whatever goes, whatever happens next, just kind of falls into place. It's that we build the kind of society we want to see um, right now in in opposition to to the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know there's the the common saying is that you know we want to build build a new society in the shell of the old. Um, mm-hmm. So that, I guess that would be the the sort of practical answer, not at the philosophical level, but at more practical level of how. Um, anarchists think you know we're going to get to anarchy. That would that would be my um, my sort of answer to that. So once we build those sorts of institutions um, and resist um, the state, um, the, the, what we're left with is not going to be some sort of Hobbesian nightmare, but um, you know based on what what we start building right now. Mm-hmm. I do. I think agree that like it wouldn't necessarily be as red and tooth and claws like right. <laughs> some folks might think. Though like I, I'm still I still wonder how much maybe more in a like lock kind of way, like how much progress you would get without the enforcement of contracts to some extent. And that, I mean, I, I'm also like, just really like living under the rule of law. And I feel like the rule of law is pretty valuable. And like, I'm a, I'm a little, un, um, I don't really want to give it up. I would rather see it applied more effectively to certain people than others. But I'm like, I just, you know, these are just expressing, I think you're making interesting points here. Um, so 
so one other thing I want to do before we roll over to um, making the void livable is, uh, given that I love all of your takes on Twitter about what is real and not real, um, I wanted to do a quick lightning round here at the end. And uh, are, uh, are we, yeah, are we talking about conventionally real or, or ultimately? Real? Well, that was going to say two things, right? Luckily for you, I, I'm not going to make you define real, so you can okay. weasel your way out of every answer you give here later when this is like, and it will be endlessly dissected on philosophy, Twitter, hell, so that like there are going to be debates about it, but at least like you can pretend that you meant whatever someone else meant at some other point eventually, right? So, so real or no real, uh, you know, yes or no here, right? Um, you ready? Sure, let's go. All right, we'll start easy. Uh, the external world. Yes. Real, okay. Uh, real, ph- yep. ph- phenomenal consciousness? Not real. Not real. Uh, political ideologies? Uh, I mean, what do you... Well, they... <laughs> real or not real? <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they're real in that people believe them, so I guess right. it's real. Okay. Uh, qualia? Uh, not real. Definitely not real. Selves? Not real. Okay. Identity? Well, uh, identity just like identity in general personal identity maybe oh personal well i guess i mean if we're talking about selves then there's no no i don't think personal identity. some people well, might think of those as being slightly different potentially right a self could be a more robust thing than just like how you identify maybe um maybe i want to say con- conventionally real ultimately okay. not real. <laughs> um gender <laughs> that's just gonna be my cop-out answer to everything yeah right it's the way it's the buddhist way uh what about gender <laughs> Gender, um, I would say real, real social construct. Uh huh. Yeah, a lot of these fall under the real social construct trick. Yeah. I think. For, <laughs> same with race, probably. I'm guessing. Yep. Same with race. Species. Same. Yeah. Morality. Definitely not real. Oh. <laughs> uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm uh, pretty firmly in the theorist camp when it comes to morality, so okay. I'm going to say no to that. We may have to have you back on at some point to debate that. Um, defend, yeah, I will defend error theory. To defend your error theory honor. Uh, knowledge? Knowledge? Um, conventionally real. <laughs> Postmodern fish. Um, modalities? Oh, definitely not real. <laughs> God? <laughs> definitely not real. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. Those are some, some good answers. It's quality work. Um, do you have any I final thoughts? I ask about free will. But, oh, yeah. Um, I was, let, me, let me ask, were there any other ones that you should, I should ask about? Free will. You're right. Free will I should ask about. Uh, yeah, I'd say, uh, I don't know. So I changed my mind on this. I want to say not real, but I also want to say conventionally real. So uh-huh. you can, we can pick. Did you change your mind because you listened to me talking about moral luck and now you're really skeptical? Uh, I think <laughs> uh, moral luck has always been part of it, but I've also been reading some of the, some of the literature from... Um, incompatibilists that's been challenging my compatibilism so mm, good i think compatibilism doesn't, <laughs> doesn't survive um i'm glad to hear that or any other things that you would like to lay down your markers of real or not real on um abstract objects numbers stuff like oh yeah that. definitely definitely not real um, okay not even conventionally yeah see i don't know enough about philosophy of math or language to even make the jokes properly on that front i feel like um, yeah but but um you know i'm def- that that's one thing i'm definitely right about Mm-hmm. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, anything? Uh, final thoughts before we hop over to making the void livable? Um, I think I think we've touched on you know some of the things we wanted to talk about. So, um, I don't really have anything. I know. Asking final thoughts of philosophy people is like ridiculous because they're just going to start another fight. Um, all right. Yeah. So. This is gonna this is gonna lead to a bunch of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, back and forth on twitter so we'll look forward to that amazing uh so making the void livable what do you got for us what's making the void livable for you today um bananas um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what is it about the bananas why is it the bananas because what what is not to like about bananas like why would like they're so perfect in every way um they're a monoculture (laughs) that's probably about to go extinct that's what everyone's saying to me but um i'm still i still have faith and if you if you still you know if you still have doubts about bananas just watch ray comfort's video um, <sighs> on, on bananas and that'll convince you that it's it's the most perfect thing so you're a banana change denialist yeah. is that what you're saying here yeah I'm, I'm a banana creationist i think bananas <laughs> are the one thing that were created by god um for for humans to consume <laughs> 
<laughs> Are there better and worse uh, uses of bananas? Do you have any particular banana recipes you'd like to share? So I'm a banana purist in the sense that I think you should just eat bananas and not do anything else with them, like not put them in other things. Not even like banana bread? No, just just eat the banana. <laughs> That's that's my that's my that's I think that's going to be my most controversial take of everything I've said on this um, on this, this podcast. But that's yeah. If your self exists and you had one essential property, is it this like of bananas? Do you feel like this is your independent feature? Yeah, if I yeah if I did have some sort of um, intrinsic um, <laughs> feature and intrinsic existence, it would be my my love for bananas. Well, there you go, there you go, folks. Bananas, that is the solution. Enlightenment is arrived at via bananas. Um, Well, Stingray, uh, this has been hilarious and wonderful. Do you want to tell folks where they can find you? Uh, Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at some Stingray. Um, That's, you know, I don't really have a presence anywhere else. But yeah, if you're, you know, interested in more um, jokes and anti-gamer bigotry and bananas, then, you know, go ahead and follow me it's a quality follow i strongly recommend it's a gateway drug to philosophy twitter too if you're looking for (laughs) a quick in for philosophy twitter um well thank you so much yeah thank you for having me